Voices and Filter Horrors. I'm Vincent Giles and my co-host is Bray Gams. This is a curiously waffling episode that covers topics such as the new Moog Subharmonicon, Apple's recent hardware refresh, general parts manufacturer and the impacts of COVID-19 on electronics, and a bunch of music that we've been listening to. We're finally up on Apple, Google, Spotify, Podcasts, and Stitcher, plus anywhere that you would normally get podcasts from that happens to pull from those directories. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review if that's your thing. While social distancing measures are loosening here in Victoria, we will continue to record remotely for a while longer, and so beg forgiveness for the audio quality. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Filtered Noise. To be honest, yeah. I, I actually, weirdly, I don't have all that much to talk about this week. Um, I've been really busy. Yeah, I've been, I've been super busy too. But uh, I mean, something special happened for me today, which was Moog released another semi-modular synthesizer, <laughs> which is pretty okay. dear to my heart. <laughs> and you, you and I were discussing that a bit earlier. Um, and yeah. I, I was honestly a bit surprised that it mm. wasn't already on your desk, if I'm being perfectly honest. Yeah. If, if I had, like, the Australian dollar right now is, like, piss weak. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, so for the price of what I could have bought two DFAMs mm. when I bought my DFAM, it's one subharmonicon. But having said that, they just released it today. I'm, I've had, I've seen Heinbach's, Loop Pops, and Wong's. <laughs> You've been really on it today. <laughs> Look, Mum, no computer did one. Oh, really? <laughs> um, and also, I went through Moog's catalog of uh, of their. You know, when they release a new product, they go through some of the features individually, yeah. and totally worth it. It's basically the best explanation I heard was from Heinbach, of course. Um, it's great, isn't it? He really is. Like, I, I mean. I love all of those, all, all of the channels I mentioned, I love for different reasons. Look, my no computer is so aesthetically punk, yeah. but um, <laughs> so um, what, watching him do a gear review when most of his setup that he use, uses live is his own stuff mm. that he's built. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting because he dives into like, he actually takes it apart. Like <laughs> this is his review. He plays it for about a minute and then he goes, Oh, there's wibbles and wobbles and blah, blah, blah. Let's take it apart. And then <laughs> just start, proceeds to take all of its parts apart. And he comments on things that are actually really important to me, like the quality yeah. of the buttons and yeah, the knobs. Right. And then he goes through and looks at the, the PCB and goes, Oh, here's where the ladder filter is. And here's the, like and wow. it's interesting. Like on a technical level, I was I yeah. was patroning. Um, uh, I don't know what his name is. Um, Sam. Simon. Sam. Sam. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was patroning him for a while because um, I was looking at building my own modules, and mm. his approach is so DIY, like so heavily DIY. Mm. It's like you know, so so punk. Um, yeah. As you said. And so I, I wanted to get some of his schematics, but I just, I never got around to doing it, which is a bit of a shame. Yeah. Still much of the list. I built, he has a YouTube where he built a simple oscillator mm. and I made a few of them uh, because it was just sort of fun to learn. And um, 
uh, it's a different kind of soldering for me. In my job, I do um, soft soldering for, oh, right. on larger larger pieces of equipment. For, inst- for instruments, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So soldering uh, a trumpet brace together yeah. or, or a um, tube together, different to electronic soldering um, in the fact that you use high temperature and things like that. And it's, yeah, it's surprisingly more precise but more rustic as well. Interesting. But then when you go to electronically solder, it's the adjustments are really, really fine, I feel. Mm. Mm. But, yeah, it was um, his thing was interesting. But Heinbach's explanation was that he, because he's so uh, historically versed um, in electron- electronic music, yeah, absolutely. Um, he's able to sort of see the approach that Moog has brought into the design of the instrument, which is basically, Ooh, cool. yeah, you've got um, the Rhythmicon, which is an old instrument which operated, um, he didn't explain this, but I think from my own research, operates on on light passing through certain holes in a disc that rotates um so there's a key a key that lights up a diode that responds to the hole um in this rotating disc uh, which is your tempo and the on the opposite side you've got uh um uh i'm trying to think of the word i probably wrote it down somewhere um like a photo um, receptor, hmm. like a light receptor on the other side. And every time the light shines through the hole, it operates a, a pitch. Yeah, right. So, so kind of like the um, factorial system in, in Eurorack, but, but a little less subtle. Much more rustic yeah (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. um yeah so through that way you get all these sort of polyrhythm generators and they're subtractive because they operate off of the the outer diameter of of the of the this disc um and the subdivisions of that so it looks quite pretty because it's i bet it does yeah it's like a lotus um, on, on of these holes on this disc um and i watched some performances of um people playing that, which I thought was like, oh, that's kind of cool to understand that. And the other instrument was the tritonium, which is oh, yeah. um, something that Hindemith used a lot and yeah. uh, Oscar Zala mm. um, used. Um, he had his own one, which I think was called a mixture tritonium or something like that. Didn't, was, it, was it someone like um, Kraftwerk or something that used the tritonium? In the early um, days of that kind of more popular electronic music, I, 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 there's some. Maybe it was like Brian Eno or something. I don't know. It it doesn't surprise me that like this piece of equipment in general would have uh, influenced a lot of electro pop. Yeah. So basically, at the time, I mean, what Hindemith used it for is basically it seemed very much like a string instrument. He used it mm. as a sort of monophonic voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was, you know, trios written for Trautonium. Or I'm not, <laughs> I love probably that. not saying it right. Yeah, yeah. I always exactly. thought it was Trautonium, like the fish, but I don't think it is. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's T R A U for the trauma that people endured trying to learn how to play it. I think. <laughs> yeah. uh, nice. But but yeah, it's so it's a combination of those two things because of in one way because of the sub frequencies 
that it's able to generate off of the oscillators, mm. um, which is, yeah, kind of, yeah, it made me delve back into um, electronic music history. So I have a Great. lot that I've been thinking about in terms of that Great. Um, this week. So, yeah. Fantastic. Because of Moog. So thank yeah. you, Bob Moog. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, rest in peace or... Whatever. Is, he, is he dead? Is he? Oh, here you go. oh God, I don't want to have said that on a podcast if <laughs> if he's still alive. Hang on, just um, fact check. I'm, every I'm time gonna... I hear people talking about, about him, I'm like, uh, I'm like, oh, yeah, he's, he, he's like, dead. He must be. Yeah, he's de- must died be fifteen right. years, fifteen years ago. God, I'm really happy. <laughs> for that, for that. And yet sad at the same time, I'm sure. Yeah. Hey, his legacy lives on mm. through the subharmonicon. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Apparently he went, he went to Cornell University. There you go. Thanks, Internet. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> ah, right. So has there been like a piece of gear that you looked at this week and gone, oh, I mean, yeah, one that I mean, I have a particular affinity with Moog. Um, <laughs> but when the make like last week when the make noise uh no control came out, I was really, really intrigued. Yeah. But yeah. This made me stop a bit thinking about it. To be honest, I I the only it's not really gear, but um what did catch my eye. Not that I'm a user of this software, but Logic Pro, Apple did a massive update on Logic Pro this week. Mm-hmm. Um and it looks really interesting. So it looks like they've taken a lot of cues from Bitweek Studio, Ableton Live, um, probably some other companies that I, I didn't don't know about. But they've got they've redone the sampler to be much more like Ableton Live's simpler, which is really cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they've got clip launching capacity now, like Ableton Live. So it's it looks beautiful. It looks um really aesthetically nice and logic has always looked quite aesthetically pleasing um it's not i personally don't particularly like the interface but i can understand that it looks very nice if that makes sense that being said with full disclosure i haven't yet found a digital audio workstation i do like the interface of Mm. um not that i have a viable alternative it's just, okay. <laughs> just yeah. there's there's something um, weird about it. I've been using Reaper for this podcast actually, and I'm enjoying that because it's it works a lot like physical tape, um, yeah, kind of like Pro Tools does, but yeah, in some ways it's a bit bit nicer than Pro Tools. The price tag yeah. for one, but yeah, yeah I've so, heard that it <clears throat> like Reaper's quite reasonable, and for like I know a few recording engineers who are very, very good recording engineers mm. who have recorded albums where you don't expect them to use an $80 piece of software. Totally. Totally and, right. $104,000 yeah. $4, now at the exchange rate. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I joke, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Six, 60 I, US dollars. But I, I joke, but I can't afford the tissues to wipe away my tears either. Pretty much. Actually, yeah. I just... I, I just um, Paid some money in Canadian dollars the other day, totally unrelated, and this is tangential. But uh, even even the the old Canadian dollar, which we're always pretty much on par with, even even that's beating the Australian dollar by, you know, fifty sixty cents to the dollar. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. But anyway, logic. So um, for the first time in years, I've thought that logic looks like a 
a more contemporary digital audio workstation again. It looks mm -hmm. like it's taken some cues from other software and really done some nice interface redesigns or add-ons, I guess, really taking care to, to redesign the sampler um, and make a... It'd be interesting to see how it works. I, I would love to get a copy. So, um, you know, Tim Cook, if you're listening and you want to hook me up <laughs> with a free copy of Logic, I, I won't object. But um, We don't have a Patreon, but we will take sponsors. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, illicit uh, or otherwise. <laughs> yeah. So Moog, you know, if you if you feel like sending yeah. Bray, if you feel like sending Bray a bit of hardware, that that wouldn't go astray. Yeah, um, I might download the trial. Actually, I just I just resent taking up all the space on my computer. I've got other stuff to load <clears throat> onto my computer. But just to, I wouldn't mind having a try of it to to see how the new interface works, to see how the clip launching works, and to see whether they've built a viable live performance environment. So. Um, in some of my teaching work, um, some of my later stage students explore trying to convert Logic into a live performance environment. And previously that's been a really deep project to dive into because it's just not built for it. And, and Apple's other sort of live performance offering, which is main stage, is really more about, you know, throwing some effects on a guitar or some effects on a vocals or something like that. So to have the capacity to launch you know, really decently sliced up samples to control things much more dynamically like you do with Ableton Live or Bitwig. I feel like that's a really nice step in the right direction for Apple to, to take. And it's interesting, just as an aside, I'm a little bit of an Apple person. I never used to be. And, you know, with full disclosure, there's uh, that I feel like that is the full disclosure I like Apple products is the disclaimer. Yeah. Um, the, they've just announced a whole bunch of, they, they've just re, um, rejigged their MacBook Pro line as well. To, and they're, right. they're quite beefy systems mm. um, and moderately okay priced for Apple. Yeah. So it reminds me of around 2010, they just, they, they did a refresh on their range and, they were, they suddenly dropped in price. And so even with the exchange rate at the moment, the Australian pricing isn't tragic. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's still poor, but it's yeah. not tragic. Um, mm. And I would 100% recommend people use whatever system makes them happy and that they can afford. And if that's yeah. a Google Chromebook that they're running like basic stuff on to make music great. That that makes yeah. me happy. But yeah, it's just interesting that they did the Logic rejig more or less on par with the uh, MacBook Pro rejig. Mm. And a lot of the coverage of these two things is seemingly indicating an opinion that Apple may be reorienting towards a pro market again. But with the caveat that the pro market is not the pro market of 2005 when Apple was, you know, the pro computer yeah. for the, for the arts more generally, but the yeah. pro market has changed and that Apple is kind of addressing that in a way that Microsoft never will because Microsoft's, you know, uh, a, 
operating system vendor, not a hardware vendor, even though they do have hardware now too. Yeah, they now have hardware. And I think one of the things that Apple might be starting to achieve too, um, and this is just on an ethical level, um, I'm not a fan of many many bits of like like computers and things like that. I try and use it until I can't possibly anymore. Mm. I still have that MacBook that my cat jumped on. The screen still doesn't work. <laughs> I plug it into my TV if I need to edit something and yep. need to see the top left hand of the screen. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is conveniently where all the menu bars are. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, one of the things that I think Apple is starting to do, not that I'm a huge fanboy or anything like that, I'm, I don't care. Yeah. But um, because they are so in touch with the arts market um, and the arts market seems to be more in touch with humanities in general, mm. um, is that um, I think Apple made a conceded effort to, um, clean up their practices around manufacturing overseas. Absolutely. Well, and it's interesting. Is, yeah. Which is very interesting. It um, is. And they and have kept reasonably quiet about it, which is yeah. refreshing. Yeah. Well, just on that note, I mean, something that has caught my attention this week, and this is a little tangential, part of the discourse around that whole Apple refresh and everything is, mm-hmm. you know, what else is out there and the fact that you can get a Windows-based machine for, you know, not quite half the price, but um, it maybe a grand less than the Apple equivalent, which has pretty much always been the case um, for as long as I've been using any kind of computer, really. Mm, um, yeah. So that's that's fine. But what's interesting and, and what I found curious and just and I'll bring it back to what you were saying about the ethics in, in a minute um, is so slight tangent. Obviously, I've been doing this title cycles um like course thing over the last, Mm. this is week four. So over the last five weeks um, and, you know, probably 40% of the people that use title cycles and super collider and other code things that aren't max MSP um, use Linux or, Mm. or Unix, but mostly Linux. And so it got me looking into, um, with the, the Apple refresh part of the discourse that I was reading around that was, you know, Linux is a really competitive operating system now if you are happy to use open source software. So, you know, for example, Pure Data, Super Collider, Tidal, um, uh, I think Reaper runs on Linux too, if I remember rightly, it might not. Um, there's so much quite good software out there for Linux now. And of course you can just dual boot into windows if you need to. So there was this interesting discussion around that. And I started looking at some of the higher end um, windows and all Linux machines. Cause mm. doing Linux on a Mac is a pain in the butt. Totally yeah. in the butt. And kind of redundant given Mac OS is Linux anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. But the, what's interesting is there's a company that's quite a maker of quite high end computers called Razor, and they have an old line from 2019 of computers, which are really, really good and easily comparable with the new MacBook Pros. But they have a let me know when the new line are out, but they've already been out for a while. And the problem is supply chains due to COVID 19. So they're mm. sourcing their parts from places that have been affected by shutdown. And so why I bring this 
bring this up is that Apple seemed to have no such problem. Now that suggests a couple of things. So potentially, as you said, their ethical treatment is not slowing down their capacity to produce parts, mm. which would be interesting, suggesting that they have managed to, wherever they're sourcing their parts from, are not affected by um, social distancing measures that the Chinese government have been really quite diligent about, seemingly. Mm. Um, but also, yeah, it just, it just kind of struck me as interesting that a lot of these hardware manufacturers are having supply problems, but Apple mm. doesn't seem to be. And that, I wonder if that does tie into that ethical or slightly more ethical stance that they've they've taken. Yeah. Um, as somebody who's on the inside of manufacturing in general mm. um, and getting to see uh, what areas of the world are hit in terms of where they manufacture, um, it, I, I don't think parts and supply chain, unless they're making parts in-house, mm. um, I don't think it's affected as many businesses as we we think about. But part, like small parts where they turn out heaps and heaps and heaps and all it really needs is people there to operate machinery. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it depends on the part and it depends on the machinery, but things like resistors and transistors and small little parts yeah. um, are probably where the electronics market feels it the most. Interesting. They, they wouldn't make it, they wouldn't make it in house. Like there's yeah, no point. Of course. There's no point in a big brand or like, I don't want to name a big brand because I don't know, but I doubt anyone from the Euro rack world would be making their own transistors and yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, comp and small components, um, even things like knobs, I don't think they would make with the exception of a few, you know, who would probably mm. have a bespoke knob or something like that. But there would be places like Moog. I, I, I don't know. Maybe they get their knobs made especially for them. Like yeah. is there a Moog design knob that they'd be like, well, this is the knob that has to go on here and they might make it in-house. But those little parts, because in those factories, they don't have, um, they, they, it's a, it's a chain of commands. So basically you'd have 10 people working on a workstation, workstation separating, you know, hundreds of thousands of transistors into bags of 10 at a time. Yeah. Right. Um, so the difference if in social distancing might be something like instead of having 10 people there, you can only have four yeah, on, okay. on that one chain. So it would slow so, it down, but not destroy it. Kind of thing. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, it does make manufacturers either source from other, other places, mm. but there's also other parts of the world where manufacturing has been shut down. Um, like Indonesia right now are feeling mm. it quite hard. Um, I know Japan will feel it quite hard in small batches. Now yeah. there's parts of America that obviously should be feeling it a lot more than they are, <laughs> but they're not. But, um, you know, there's, there's part of the, I think, it's it's also about how much stock they've generated over that time as well. Mm. Sorry, that's really interesting. That's a massive tangent now. Totally, <laughs> but I, I, it it seems really relevant because you know, like talking about DIY synthesis, it probably hasn't affected many people yet, mm. but maybe it will drive the price up. For instance, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and then yeah, and one of 
one of the things that's really attractive about DIY synthesis in general and why, why I think and we'll eventually, hopefully, bring this around to the white pube article that you mentioned last week. <laughs> but, hear me out. <laughs> this is going to be this is going to be one of those episodes, folks. Um, but one of three yeah. <laughs> those episodes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, basically, I think one of the things that's so attractive about DIY synthesis is that you don't really need all that much to start making something that's meaningful to you. Mm. making that thing about we were talking about energy last week and that's what was mentioned in the white pube article yeah um which i i I listened to it and i read it and i i now have a better understanding of it i think um so that thing about making making something that's meaningful to you making something that has kind of almost more of a uh fuck you for not really understanding me kind of thing. Mm. One of the things that really struck me about that was, um, you know, the feedback that oh, I would have preferred this if it were blue. And that's what makes red so important to you. Yeah. Because it is the, it's red and you decided it. Yeah. And I feel like DIY synthesis is all about that. And the way we uh, curate our, our racks and our setup and our design and, even like we might have 10,000 modules on a wall like Andrew Huang, but then you take three on the road yeah, and, and do, and do a whole tour with that and you make something different every night. And I think that's uh, one of the things that um, is beautiful to me about DIY synthesis. One of the things that comes with this sort of thing and pushing the price up is that I think some people are going to be, maybe push to undertake music in a different way. Mm. I look at cheaper, maybe not cheaper, but um, more rustic ways of making music. Um, And they, they become a little bit more attractive as a means to an end when something like DIY synthesis, which is not only like it, it can be cheap, but also, it is expansive as well. Yeah. People sometimes look at that that and go, I need, like they might look at Andrew Huang's video where he says, you'll need something that makes a noise, something that, uh, you know, triggers that noise, um, something like an envelope shaper, a filter and other effects. Mm. And, you know, you price those up in your head and you go, oh, this is getting really scary. Mm. Um and you look at the price of the O-Coast and the Subharmonicon and Mothers and they're all now, you know, getting close to a grand. And that's where people start to feel a little bit distant from from this way of making music, I feel. Yeah. But then there's, there's programs like Tidal Cycles, which are, f- for the most part, free. Oh, totally free. It is free. It's open yeah. source. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. If you want to learn about it. Well, yeah. you can you can still do that. I mean, I'm I'm paying for this yeah. course because mm. um, it's structured. But mm. people with more discipline and potentially um, slightly less chaotic brains would uh, possibly mm. do quite well teaching themselves. You know. Yeah, maybe. And I think so. Maybe early prediction, but I feel like that we might see. Um, 
more activity in the software space because of, yeah. because of this well, um, yeah. and yeah. a little less in the hardware space. Yeah, that's, that, that's an interesting thing. We, I'd be interested to come back to that in a few weeks and see if we can check in on that and um, maybe yeah. a couple of months after that as well. Um, yeah. Especially because a lot of these, the impacts of this, especially what you've been discussing, probably won't be truly felt for mm. a few months, right? Like it's going to take... Yeah. The, the flow on effect's going to be delayed, I guess. Yeah, that's right. I think, I, yeah, I think the, the, the flow on effect in general, like the economic effect, I don't think we'll truly feel until um, a few months down the track. Like a lot of us feel like we're feeling the economic effect now because there's been a whole heap of job loss and lots of really sad things in the world. But um, once it gets back to some sort of sense of normal, there's going to be a whole heap of caveats that we're going to have to address um, in terms of the economic situation, which are unfortunately going to limit people's free time and things like that, which in a movement that is still... You know, it's a lot of people sitting in their bedrooms making music, not playing gigs, um, which is, you know, it's like it's kind of the graffiti of of the music world in that way. Um, That's an interesting way of looking at it, yeah. Yeah, because a lot of the time it's put up on sites like Bandcamp and SoundCloud and things like that, which are great. Um, And it's uh, for every one success story where there's tens of thousands of or hundreds of thousands of plays, there's another hundred of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who get, you know, 10 to 15 plays or a hundred plays or something mm. like that, which is beautiful in a way and sad in another, sad in another way as well. Yeah. But not too different to the doing gigs thing, really. You know, that's exactly right. But have, they don't have a they don't have a gig a lot of some yeah, of the time. Well, that's true. You know? I mean, but like I've I've done so many gigs to three to three to fifteen people. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. So I many. I used to curate a, a, a improvisation night or a jazz. It was mainly aimed at jazz audiences, I should mm. say. Um, and I put on Mark Hannaford's trio, which was it was the year they won the Bell Award, <laughs> and two people were in the audience and I was one of them. <laughs> and it oh was God. wild. It's one of the best gigs I've ever seen. And yeah. I was one of only two people that saw it. Wow. Was that at Lebowski's? Yeah, yeah that was Lebowski's back, yeah. in the, back in the back in the day. Yeah. Wow. Lebowski's, for those of you who are listening and don't know, Lebowski's is a wonderful organization that was started years and years ago. They're sort of uh, doing a sort of history of it now. Joel Trigan, oh, wow. um, cool. Matt Roach, I think, are doing a, a history of Lebowski's. And I was lucky enough to be a part of that history, which is kind of cool. But, yeah, it's it's been through so many ebbs and flows in its time. Like I remember a couple of weeks into running Lebowski's, I filled the room and mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this is awesome. You know, like having 60 people in that front room at 303. Mm. Oh, and, right, yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, six to eight weeks later, two people at Mark Hannaford, which I thought was going to be <laughs> far, far bigger. Yeah. But, Interesting. You know, yeah. So where that leads to um, for me onto that white pube article mm. was the thing about curation. And one thing I want to ask you and I want your opinion on is 
what do you think about the idea that we actually we we curate our own playlist and music is for the most part pop music's a kind of different thing and the the whole music industry on its thing I treat like the museum <laughs> in in the example of the sure. yeah. of of the white pube article yeah, yeah. and everything else I treat which is not necessarily what's popular but everything else is curated by the audience so we choose to go to the gig but or we choose to go to the to buy the album kind mm. of thing yeah and also like to the point where we actually curate when we decide we want to listen to tracks rather than albums and things like that as well so what's your question <laughs> sorry <laughs> sorry so uh, um in the art world it seems like much more of a chance um, to see popular art, for lack of a better term, okay. curated by the museum. Whereas yep. in music, you can you have the and and technology. Luckily, you can curate your own to to your own tastes much more easily. It's okay. Yeah, I I see. Um, I there's I. <laughs> That's a tough question, Ray. Um, Sorry. My, <laughs> my first response is that I'm not sure that curate is the right word to describe what we do as listeners and audiences. Um, and I, I say that with as much, like, to, to be respectful of the role of curation itself, which from my very, very limited understanding is really quite specialised and really quite involved. Um, because there's the, there was a thing going around a couple of years ago where I don't remember where it came from, um, but it was an article about how the term curating has been appropriated into everything, you know, like uh, a cooking show curating ingredients kind of thing. And it's like, so it's, it's more, okay. As I gather my thoughts around this, <laughs> the, it strikes me that what we do as listeners and audiences is, I guess it could be seen as a type of curation, but because that curation is for private use, whereas museum curation is for public mm. use, there seems to be a, a, a difference there. Um, and so it's more like what we do is select selection. And and I the, the term selection I use there in a kind of pseudo-Darwinian sense. So we're selecting what we listen to and what we attend based on a whole host of environmental and personal mm. variables and factors. So, yep. you know, for instance, do, do we want to appeal to somebody for courting purposes? And so we are suddenly really into like, I don't know. Or the music they're into. Yeah, precisely. You know, whatever yeah. it happens to be. Um, and are, or are we trying to appear to be, 
members of a certain social class or a certain mm. political class or something like that. And so do we orient our listening and our engagement based on that? And I, for whatever reason, I, I'm just, and I'm intuitively riffing here. I'm not, this is not an informed <laughs> view whatsoever, but I, I feel like with the curational aspect of it, that's much more of a, less prone to environmental factors, I suppose. It obviously is as well. But because it's an outward gesture rather than an inward gesture, I feel like there's a there's a big difference there. Yeah. I think I, one thing I would say is like, because when you were talking about class and the, and the, the behaviours around presenting music is, I feel like a lot within the music culture you're sometimes at gigs to be seen. Mm, totally. <laughs> um, and not necessarily even not necessarily if you're a musician, although it does happen a lot there as well. <laughs> but but like if um like a great example, and I don't want to well, I kind of want to throw off Brian under the bus <laughs> at all times. I won't hold you I won't I, I won't fault you for that sometimes. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Just drop it in in editing that one. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, one thing that sort of really perturbs me about opera is it gets funded as this as this idea of uh, it's for the elite and the elite mm. attend, and it's priced as if the elite would only attend. Absolutely. And, and one thing I really resent is rocking up to an opera gig without a jacket on when I first moved <laughs> to Melbourne and, and then, and being looked up and down by other patrons mm. thinking, thinking to myself, sorry, I thought I was here to see music, not yep. jackets. Like, Correct. And the, that, that part of that. So I acknowledge that there's sort of a few tiers of curation that are going on here. There's sort of like, or not even curation, maybe selection. Mm. Um, obviously, there's the venue or the overarching body who's curating that evening, mm -hmm. which in a lot of the times it could be Opera Australia or, or such, such like. Yeah. Um, who put on, you know, things like Wagner and other dead white European <laughs> dudes um, pretty much exclusively and not much else. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, if if you if you're alive, anything other than white and not and not male, yeah, or not male, not male identifying, then your chances of ending up in OV's program, not to throw OV under the bus, I like a lot of the people there, are very slim. You'd have to be you you'd be literally one in ten. A yeah, year. but that's that's not a um, that's not a critique of the people at OV. It's a critique of OV as a as a cultural body, right? What's well, a critique of opera because it's it's opera and it's opera in Australia. I think true. maybe classical music in general in Australia to that some is, degree. That is true. I mean, you do have the now no longer named Chambermaid Opera, which is just now known as Chambermaid. Um, they were the, the polar opposite of that, but they're obviously a smaller organization. And yeah. For one of them that gets so, so little funding, you have, you know, three or four that get so much. Absolutely. Funding. 
And the, the, and, what they call peak bodies? No, um, MPA is the Major Performing Arts Associations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's ridiculous. And one thing that sort of struck me about um, this conversation in the White Pube is something that I've always thought about. Like I, I tried to enjoy opera. Like I actually made an effort to go out and mm. enjoy like very, very traditional Paganini, <laughs> Wagner, you yeah. know, the hits the hits of opera <laughs> live because I, I always thought that if I saw it live, I'd get the best representation, the least compressed mm. version of what it is. And I, I find there's moments which are, which bring me a very slight tick of joy. And for the most part, it's very, very flaccid and dead. Mm, totally agree. And, and then going back to that example of energy. There is. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it is now. Yeah, it's high quality. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. Very like, low energy. <laughs> yeah, uh, and one of the things that has been sort of levered, leveraged against um, people who are critiquing opera is like, oh, you go do it then, and I'm just like, I can't fucking do it. Like that's, it's, I'm not judging the quality of it. Like, yeah. Why don't, why don't you go improvise with Scott Tinkler and see how you yeah. how you fare? You might do better at that then I would do an opera, but you can't keep up with some of the best improvisers in the world. <laughs> doesn't mean that either of it's like good in terms of energy. And it's yeah. just that the quality is the same. Totally. But in different areas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, I, like I get, get what you're asking about the curatorialness of our kind of everyday life, I guess. Mm. I just feel like it, it ought to be framed. And I, I, differently as selection and I feel like the key thing for me from that curatorial critique I guess in the white pube article was mm. um more to do with the gatekeeper nature of it which is what you've been getting at this whole time it's this this real yeah. sense that the curators whoever they are are really holding the cultural keys and limiting the cultural impact of things or the cultural expansiveness of things yeah Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I, and, you, I agree. Yeah. I think, and yeah, it's just, it was really interesting um, to, to read that and think about, you know, the, the programs that I've seen in the last 11 years of living in what I think is Australia's music capital. Mm. Um, <laughs> and to contextualize it with, you know, this, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to jump all over the place but contextualizing it with the mode that's just been released <laughs> the fact that the fact that electronic music's been like people playing electric instruments and music on electronic instruments has been around since the 20s and 30s mm. like late 20s actually early a, bit 30s. Early, a bit earlier actually with if you can yeah. include the, if you include the Italian futurist machines as oh, pro, yeah, yeah, as yeah. proto electronic music then it goes back to the, the like 1910s ish. That's like uh, Evangelisti and, um, or maybe even pre that. Russello, Luigi Russello. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Um, I can't remember the other people's names. Yeah. But it's, yeah, I, it just strikes me as really, really weird that we, we don't really see any of that in programming. And it's not for people who lack expertise as well. There's plenty of people who are well-versed enough to be able to perform that music right here in Melbourne. And it's, it's really disappointing that 
<clears throat> we give so much money to have flaccid audiences. Yeah, I'm, I agree. I'm going to call them. Totally. Yeah. Can I jump in and riff yeah. on something there a little bit? Of course, please. So one of the things that I find really exciting about electronic music and have done for a really long time, um, probably since I, even before I started getting interested in computer music, I, I sort of thought that people using a computer to make music, and, I, and I'm hearkening back to the definition of computer music I gave in episode zero. Um, sorry, did I say computer music? Whatever, fixing post. Um, <laughs> the, I lost my train of thought. So I always kind of thought that, um, computers from probably even computers being used to record with, which I started doing around 2003, I think, um, yeah, 2002, 2003 is when I first started using a computer to record my own playing with. And it's always struck me as a very folky but not aesthetically folk because what does that even mean? Mm. But a very – it's music of a people because – and with caveats, of course, because not everyone's privileged enough to be able to afford a computer of any kind. Mm. But – Actually, as a slight tangent, Miles Mumford years ago, the recording engineer and composer yeah. and stuff, uh, it must have been like six or seven years ago, was in Africa with his partner who was working in Africa and he built a recording studio for virtually no money in this village, in, I don't remember, in Swaziland and mm. helped a whole bunch of people in this quite poor part of the world upskill, produce music and released it into the world. And I think that is an absolutely amazing thing. And it, it's tangential in the only sense that there was very little money to do that, mm. but there was enough money to do it and it became a community asset. And mm. so I, so when I'm talking about the privilege of being able to make music on a computer, that is undoubtedly true. That is a privileged position. And to get a little political for a moment, I anticipate sometime in the future, we will all have to become much more communal about this at some mm. stage and sharing resources more. Okay. So with all of that out of the way, and I don't, I want to acknowledge the privilege of being able to make music on a computer in 2002 to 2003, immensely privileged, yeah. no doubt about it. Um, the idea it has always seemed to me that it is within the reach, given those caveats of a lot of people in a way that playing an instrument is not mm. because you yeah. don't you, like, you can make music on a Raspberry Pi computer. Mm -hmm. You can make music on a $20 Arduino if you really want to. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there are some super cheap, and again, that is still expensive in some parts of the world mm -hmm. and for some people, even in this parts of the world. But it is undoubtedly available technology in a way that recording making music with a computer, making music electronically more generally was simply not possible for a lot of people financially up until maybe the early 2000s, late 1990s, somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. It's become more available to more people and it's still a, uh, and I'm harboring on this, it's still a problem as far as accessibility goes, but it's more and more available. And, you know, an example of where it's available in Melbourne is it's currently closed, I think, because of COVID-19, but the, the channel at the art centre 
have a, yeah. public, have a public community recording studio that people can come in and use with supervision. That's an amazing resource. Mm. So, so what I'm saying, or what I'm trying to get at is that the electronic music world generally and modular synthesis not included in this whatsoever because <laughs> mm. it is prohibitively expensive. Mm. But if you have the, the tenacity to learn some basic coding and, you know, happy to use Linux or, you know, steal software, um, then you can make music for the cost of a cheap computer. Yeah, absolutely. And that seems really both punk and it also seems really anti, it feels really subversive and it feels really of the people to use that term in relation to folkishness. Um, Mm. And, and not as prone to the kind of gatekeeperiness. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm going to defend modular synthesis. (laughs) That's, that's my, maybe not modular synthesis, but maybe just analog in general. Oh yeah. I'm going to defend it because I think like if you, if you have um, access to, like resources which are essentially cheap or free if you go to a library and you learn a little bit about um soldering and electronics you could make an oscillator absolutely but but i I would say it's maybe a little less accessible um in terms of actual setup costs It it can be it's probably cheaper than a computer but um doing the research making a lot of mistakes it can it can uh take a little bit more time yeah but at the same time, I think um, taking music anywhere um, in terms of taking electric, uh, electronic music and distributing amongst as as mm-hmm. far and wide as it goes, there is going to be a computer involved at some point in time. Yeah. There, obviously, the, the recording studios that are available at the Art Centre are a great resource for that as well. So. Totally. And, and it's the sort of thing where you could do it at a library too. Like you could go to a library and access the computers there to make a Bandcamp account and all that kind of stuff if you, if you wanted to. Yeah, absolutely. I, I used to go to the library when I was a kid because we didn't have a computer at home. Hmm. Um, I think we their dial-up internet came around when I was in like year 11 in our area. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really, that is really interesting. That's yeah. totally tangential. You're only, what, a year younger than me, and that, that's, that's fascinating. Mm. Yeah. yeah, but it's – I think we got, we got a computer – probably I think when mum had to stay at home to do word pro some sort of data, data processing, mm-hmm. um, like I think they were, I th- yeah, I don't remember the specifics of it, but it was quite late in comparison to what I've talked to other people who are younger than me, but I started, I went to uni a little later. Mm. Um, and yeah, the people too. who I, yeah, the people who I talked to, they, they, are so well versed in like Microsoft Word <laughs> in com- by comparison to me, and and I, I knew how to write a resume, yeah, and um, and that's about it. Um, I have yeah. a really funny anecdote for you that I think might tickle you a little bit. I grew up relatively poor, and um, my mom got me a secondhand, really old computer, really cheap, and I was in maybe grade four or so when that happened. I guess right in primary school. Um, and and I must have been a bit younger than that, but by grade four, I started to, for whatever reason, my school, my primary school had books on programming quick basic, 
Kiwesik, Microsoft's Kiwesik. And I taught myself to do like little visual animations using QuickBasic. <laughs> but some of them, I just remember that some of them also generated sound. And I wonder if that was like the really early adventures into computer music when I was, oh. when I was maybe 10 um, and doing code-based sound making. Yeah. Were you already playing an instrument by then? Uh, I'd done keyboard and some other things by then, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I thought so too. That's, <laughs> that's really cool, actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can't think of what my origin would have been. Like, I, I did have a keyboard that my grandmother gave me. I actually had two. My my nan on my mum's side gave me basically um, electronic melodica. Yeah, so nice. It was, it would pump air and yeah. the air would go through the reed. So instead of blowing oh, into it, yeah, awesome. and they were the D batteries. There's yeah. about four of them in it. I remember those sorts of devices. Yeah. Yeah. The batteries themselves weighed more than the actual thing. Yeah. Um, and I, I remember playing that for ages, but not really any aims, no education. No. Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. Like but it wasn't, it probably wasn't until I started playing trumpet that I really thought about music yeah it wasn't until i started playing bass that oh, actually first guitar and then bass that i started really yeah. doing it properly what have you been listening to this week if i know it's been a busy week for you yeah you, has anything captured your ears like it's captured mine well two things um and one of which is absolutely not new now but mm. i was having a, a re-listen to billy eilish's when we all fall asleep where do we go album mm-hmm. or whatever it's called i f- mm. i fucking love that album i can't i honestly you know i was talking about fiona apple last week and, and like the energy that i get from that billy eilish album to, with full caveat not her first album i i don't know if that's a maturity thing or, or what but this um when we all fall asleep where do we go i think that's the name of the album it's such a corker and i i find it so fascinating intellectually as well as I find the energy really good and all of this kind of stuff. But it reminds me of the kind of energy I got from albums like um, Tori Amos's, I can't remember what it's called, um, the one with Cornflake Girl on it back when I first started listening to Tori Amos and like Annie DeFranco and a lot of stuff that I, I listened to when I was much younger. But the Billie Eilish is so, so electronic. Like there's so... Have you heard it at all? I've only heard bits of it. Um, It's not something I've actually gone out and listened to the whole album. I know that her brother is the, is uh, the, what's the correct term? Producer. Producer, I guess. Yeah. Um, Is the producer of a lot of this stuff, but yeah, what Billie Eilish does with, with that is pretty incredible, I think. <laughs> it seems it seems to me that, you know, this is entirely conjecture, but it mm. seems to me as though the term producer is probably used in the accurate sense rather than in the sense that we use it in the common vernacular. And what I mean yeah. by that is that I imagine that um, Phineas, who's, the, who's Billy's brother, does some of the project management stuff, does some of the oversight and keeps things on track. Mm. but isn't the sole music creator and we tend and we tend to conflate producer with sole music creator so much Mm. in the 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 common common terminology so so with that in mind i I think that it's a very much a collaborative project between the two of them um 
that's such a good album. I really strongly recommend you listen to it if you if you haven't. Um, and so I was listening to that again on Saturday, I think it was, and um, I was just struck by how well orchestrated it is. And we don't think we don't think of orchestration in electronic music very often. Of course, it's part of that skill set, but we don't talk about oh, I orchestrated the nine hundred and six synth patches. You know, yeah. <laughs> we just don't talk like that. We don't talk in that classical yeah. um, vocabulary. But it's just so wonderfully orchestrated, and it's such a such an interesting album to listen to. There's so many really clever and subtle like callbacks to earlier songs on the album in later songs and vice versa, like predictions of later songs and earlier songs and shared material in the, the instrumentation, um, shared motifs that run across the whole album. Um, really fascinating use of voice processing, um, which mm. you just, if you conceive of it as a pop record, it's like the most anti-pop sounding vocal work um it's mm. fantastic yeah uh, all i've heard of billy eilish so far i've enjoyed and i can't believe it's one of those things where i haven't investigated it further mm. mainly because it's for no other reason than i never think about it yeah <laughs> so but now I, one of the things that's so joyous about this podcast is that sometimes you'll say oh like you said fiona apple last week and the first thing I did as soon as we got <laughs> off that Zoom call, well, I listened to Plexus play. And then yep. the next day I was like, oh, I'm going to check out that Fiona Apple record. It was beautiful. Yeah, it's um, great, isn't it? Yeah, it's amazing. But, I, yeah, it's something I think I'm, I, I really look forward to each week is, um, you know, swapping these recommendations. And hopefully if anyone's listening, they, they get the same inkling as what I do. Yeah, I do as well. I just I get I got really distracted this week. It was not my not the best uh, not the best listening times. The other thing that crossed my path this week that I was really into for I don't know twenty minutes or so was did you see that Orteca did a live stream on Twitch? Did you catch no, that? No. So um, they did a so the details are sketchy. I don't think anyone really knows what happened. But Orteca started a live stream that went for like eight, uh, not that long, like five or six days or something like that. And (laughs) it was, yeah. (laughs) So it was a, I think it was a collaborative, but if not collaborative, it was an ongoing max patch. And one or both of the members of Orteca would start a live, or start modifying the the max patch and see where it would went. So it was like this evolving online art like thing it was great visuals and everything right so that, that really yeah it was on twitch and that really captured my attention um via via facebook actually someone posted about it in the max msp group and i thought oh, that's really cool yeah that's amazing i i love seeing innovation like that because what yeah. one of the things that's been really um i think about this whole lockdown thing um is that music I've been more in touch with us. I feel than I ever have. Like mm. I, I have because the lack of live music, I think gets to a, a lot of people who are used to performing live yeah. um, in, in the, in the, in the way that I, I really was craving live music almost so much that I was like, I'm going to go listen to these clarinet players play a digital concert, mm. uh, which 
it's not something I don't think it's something I'd usually really go out of my way to do because there'd be so much on usually. Yeah. But with so little on, I'm more inspired to listen to things that I ne- not necessarily would have. Mm, interesting. Which is which is uh, really interesting for me, especially if it has some sort of bent to it where I think there's uh, a way that we could be approaching music um, in an environment where we're used to seeing it, but away from the actual environment itself. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Especially also- it's, yeah, it's, it's really interesting seeing classical musicians play to an empty hall yeah. and the behavior there, because um, not to say that it's wanky or anything, but bowing to an empty crowd seems a bit shit. <laughs> that seems a bit self-defeating, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm finding it interesting seeing how people are, like that, that Ortega example, it, it's looking at the medium of the internet as a medium, not as a substitute. It's a, mm. it's a thing in its own right, and I find that really exciting. You know, it's, yeah. it's not just going, uh, I'm playing my songs on guitar, through my iPhone to Facebook, yeah, because I because I can't go do that at, you know, whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. bar. Um, you don't even need a bar. No, like <laughs> yeah. you know, on the on the street as a busker or whatever. And like, oh, that reminds me of something else I saw, which was really cool. Which I'll ramble about in a sec. But um, there were, yeah, it's it's using the medium of the internet as a, its own artistic expressiveness. And mm. I mean, that, that's a, that's probably fairly large part of my own work, not necessarily the internet, but using technology is for its own expressiveness, not necessarily for, to, as a substitute for other expressiveness that I don't want to do anymore, like play bass. Um, yeah. So no, that's, anyway, that, that's my Oteca ramble. Yeah. I got into this discussion this week with a friend of mine, Ali Watts, who's a bass player who runs the band called Slipper. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was talking about like how we view art. And I was like, well, now we've got art where it exists on the internet and that's its medium. Mm. You know, that's it. It's most forward facing example. That's its truest rendition. It's the same as looking at uh, the Mona Lisa in real life mm. is hearing, uh, hearing some audio through iPhone, uh, iPhone headphones totally. or, or, yeah. or, or on Logitech speakers in your, yeah. in your, like that's some of like some of the music that we're hearing now exists in, in for that medium and that medium alone. It's not yeah. live art other than the fact that it's di- digitally live in, in some terms. Yeah. Um, and I think all of art has sort of adopted that like television yonks ago, you know, there were yeah. songs that were made for radio that weren't performed live quite a yeah. lot as well. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's interesting. I find that concept interesting. So yeah. I'll, what have you been listening to though? What's crossed uh, your yes. oral field? Uh, well, uh, aside from the things that we've, we've just been talking about, um, because of, uh, it's sort of all been very intrinsic and it's all underpinned by the fact that the mode came out today. Um, but, I love um, <laughs> but, um, uh, I did listen to, um, a lot of earlier, um, examples of electronic music, um, lots of Stockhausen again, Stockhausen's like Fantastic. Sort of formative influence in, in my musical career. Mine, mine too, um, in a big way. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you were also talking about Lacanian theory, so I thought I'd revisit um, Ian Parsons' <laughs> three-minute thesis. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, good shout-out to Ian Parsons. He's an absolute absolute legend. He really um, is. <laughs> um, so I was sort of listening to either side of Stockhausen 2. So his mentor, Franco Evangelisti, Mm-hmm. who had written some stuff for electronic music and orchestra and also uh, some of his contemporaries and uh, even some of his mentees. Mm. Um, so people like Cardew and, but revisiting a whole heap of that sort of work as well as listening to sort of like the Paul Hindemith and stuff that we were talking about before. Yeah. Um, yeah. So as it's sort of like, uh, I've, Put the OPZ has been put to one side for a second and I've been really messing around with the DFAM today and, and in the last week or so. So getting back to some of the more uh, exploratory ideas around um, early versions of synthesis mm. and music concrete and, you know, what what's going to be incorporated into my setup moving forward and how I'm going to make music as well. Yeah. Especially after I've put out an album, which is... Uh, yeah, we were talking about this in episode one, grid-based yep. or very um, well, patternistic to, for lack of a better term. And now going back and creating more cha- chaos. <laughs> mm. I, I just put out like in the terms of the cycle of Stockhausen, I just put out Eve and it's Lucifer is next. Oh, great. Um, and then I'll probably return to Michael, which will probably be maybe back to the trumpet <laughs> again because Michael <laughs> is the trumpet yeah. in, in Stockhausen. Yeah, yeah, in, in Lyft. Mm. Mm. Yes. Fantastic. But a lot of that this week. Yeah. In investigating the history of electronics, hopefully there'll be something in the future I'll stumble upon. Yeah. I mean, I, I find it interesting to try and, um, I haven't done it for a while, so I'm, I'm not going to make any recommendations to listen to anything at the moment, but just looking at where that lineage is now as well. So what? Mm. So something I was doing, um, not today, maybe yesterday I think it was, was um, I was playing with, with Super Collider, just having a look through. Um, so I did a search on my desktop to find, on my computer to find a Super Collider file of my own and um and realized that SuperCollider comes with a whole bunch of demos with, with the software. I've been using SuperCollider for like six years and never realized that it came with a whole bunch of demo pieces. <laughs> so I went, through and, I went through and had a listen to some of the, the demo pieces and some of them were astounding. It, re, it really reinvigorated my interest in using SuperCollider, which I haven't, haven't for a while. Um, but there's a piece uh, or there's a there was a piece by Thor Magnuson um, included in it, and it's just astounding. And it's cool because you create it and you know, or you execute it on your own computer and you hear it in real time. There's no need for performance. Um, but it just reminded me of, of that, or what you were talking about just then reminded me of, of that and, and thinking about where is that music now? Like where is that lineage of music now? Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about. Because I feel like I'm part of that modern lineage yeah. now. Um, when we're not making, I don't very often make grid-based music, but, um, you know, it's definitely part of that, that lineage, but yeah, just seeing what else is around, you know? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things about Stockhausen too is he has sort of like parallel lineages too, mm. I find. Like I feel like there's the acoustic side of Stockhausen that has its own lineage as well. Yeah, totally. And there's, been, and there's a whole heap of great Melbourne musicians that are part of that. Yeah. Um, Cal Gafroa comes to mind, Tristram, um, Ben Marks. Yeah. You know, well, he's not Melbourne. Is he? No, but he's Brisbane. Yeah, he's Brisbane, but, but he's but part of that lineage. Too. Illusion. <laughs> yeah, the illusion, illusion in general. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, but or, you know, around the world, you've got some incredible people who are part of that lineage, and then also as a like subsect to that lineage, you've got his children who are definitely not part of yeah. lineage as well, yeah, yeah. which is really really interesting. Um, like Marcus, his son, who. I think kind of had the worst run of it in a lot of ways. Right. Um, you know, he was performing the Licht operas when he was 17 years old Ooh, as Michael savage. getting yeah. flung around in a crane, wearing a yeah. space suit, playing the most complex <laughs> trumpet music you can possibly imagine from memory. Yeah, yeah. Like it sounds great until you realise it's your dad writing the music. Yeah, like, it's, a, it's, it's a bit um, Mozart-y, isn't it? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Like it's really, it's, you know, I don't, you, you, it's not good parenting now and it wasn't then. So, so like I feel like, and also like his daughter doesn't use the Stockhausen name anymore yeah. after, you know, after comments that Stockhausen made, which are, you know, I would, I don't think I'm being contentious by saying his comments were, maybe blown out of proportion, but at the same time, his comments were pretty aggressive in yeah, terms right. of the context of them at the time. I'll have to find out more. Not Thanks again podcast. for listening. Yeah, if yeah. you'd like to get in yeah, touch, you I'm can follow us on Instagram at Filtered Noisecast, email us on filteredNoisecast at gmail.com and visit our website, which is filteredNoisecast.wordpress.com. The opening and closing music is by Melbourne artist Bribery. Visit his Instagram at thisisbribery. This has been a Faulty Cat production.